Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we get to read about your life and your teachings, and we get to learn from you today. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'll fill me, that you'll speak through me, because we don't need a TED Talk about Jesus. We need an encounter with a supernatural person, Jesus. We need you to be here with us, speaking to us, comforting us, guiding us. We don't need me. We need you. And so, Lord, I pray today I'll disappear and that you'll become more real and present to the people listening and watching online than ever before. And I pray these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen. Uh, Jesus didn't die so that you would attend church services. He just didn't. Now, before you get up and run out of here, like, good, like, I don't have to be here then. I believe he died so that we might become students of the way that he lived and loved and so that we might make students help other people become students of the way that he lived and loved. Have you ever just looked around at everything that a church is doing and thought, what's the point of this? Like, why are we doing all this stuff? Like, why are we holding these services and activities and ministries and stuff? Why are we having all these events? I mean, I certainly have. I'm constantly asking, maybe it's my personality, maybe it's just the way that I was raised, but I'm constantly asking, what's the why? Why is the reason we're doing this? Is this necessary or is this just busy work. Darby and I both grew up in a culture of church where church busyness was heralded as spiritual maturity. The more busy you were at church, the more spiritually mature you were. Uh, people often said things like, I'm here every time the doors are open. When I was an associate pastor at a church in Tennessee, I was at church Sunday mornings for two services and then Sunday evenings for a service. I was there for Sunday school, midweek Wednesday Bible study, staff meeting, and deacons meeting. And all those meetings, all those times of being in church, not only did they not make me holy, they made me tired and frustrated and angry. They made me a bad husband and a bad employee at my day job. The way we do church makes us busy, not holy. I think church has to I get a newsletter of churches in Tennessee. Somehow they found me. I moved all the way to Philadelphia. Somehow they got my address, and they're still sending me this newsletter from churches in Tennessee. I have no idea how that happened. And I recently saw an article in there about a man who hadn't missed Sunday school uh, in 43 years. We have a picture of him up here. And he got a pin for each year that he had perfect attendance in Sunday school. And they said, Ben here, he attended Sunday school even when he was sick, even when he had just had surgery. And one time when it was snowed, he walked two miles, even though the church building was closed, sat on the porch of the church building to read his Sunday school material so that he'd have perfect attendance. And they were praising him in this newsletter, like, look at this. And I'm like, what a waste of his time and energy. How would you like to be in a class with him, like, Ben's here sick again, so he can have perfect attendance? I wouldn't want that, you know? Um, crazy guy, like, they closed church down because of snow, and he walked there so he could read his material. Is that what Jesus meant when he died? He's like, I want you to be so faithful to read your Sunday school material. I, I think he wanted something more for us than that. I think most churches keep their people so busy, they have no time to accomplish the ministry that Jesus actually wants them to do. Corey Ten Boom, who helped Jews escape the Nazis, famously said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And I think our churches are helping the devil do Church has to change. I remember when I moved up here to start Horizon, 
Um, one of the established churches in the area, I tried to reach out to other pastors and I said, hey, I want to be an ally and a friend. I don't want to steal people. I want to reach new people. We're on the same team. And uh, one of them started asking me, like, what kind of programs are your church going to offer? What kind of ministries are you going to offer? And I explained I was going to have a really simplistic approach. And I asked them what they offered. And they said, we have over 60 programs, classes, and ministries that people can be involved in in our church. And they were proud of this. They were excited about this. That their small church of less than 100 people could do so much. As kindly as I could, I asked the pastor who I was having coffee with, I said, are your people tired? Because I got tired listening to that list of 60 things you just rattled off. When I was at the church in Tennessee before I moved up here, each year we had to find 40 volunteers to lead 40 different ministries and most of the time, we ended up recruiting people using coercion or guilt-tripping people because they were already doing something else in the church. They were already serving in multiple areas, attending multiple services, attending multiple classes, and working a full-time job. And we were like, we need you to do this, too, because we have to get this ministry position filled. I think church has to change. I believe that we're wasting time, money, and energy in our churches in the pursuit of activities that aren't accomplishing the goals that Jesus set for the church. We're doing a lot of stuff, but it's not the right stuff. We're spending a lot of time, we're staying busy, but we're not actually accomplishing what Jesus imagined when he dreamed up this idea called church. Churches are doing more and more activities, but accomplishing less and less kingdom results. I think church has to change. Busyness makes us feel successful, but busyness always diminishes our productivity. We're actually doing more, but accomplishing less. It's better to do a few things well than try and do everything. Being busy about religious activities isn't Jesus's goal for you, and it isn't Jesus's goal for our church, or I think the churches in the world. Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual maturity. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your most of our churches have been designed around keeping people spiritually in a hurry. I don't think getting people to spend more of their time around religious activities at a church building are what Jesus had in mind when he said, make students of the way I live and love. I believe the church of the future, the church that's going to survive the changes in our culture and our country, will recover the value of practical Christianity without falling into the trap of performance Christianity. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring the vision that Jesus had for church. Maybe you're like, church has always been boring, it's always been stupid, it's always been pointless, it's just not for me. I think the vision Jesus had for church is a vision worth chasing and fighting for. And so we're looking at the early church in the book of Acts, not to find models like this is the way it has to be done, but to rediscover the mindset that I believe Jesus wants all churches to have. So the question I want to explore today is, how did the early church spend their time? What activities, what ministries, what did they do? Like, how did they spend their time, energy, and money? What did church look like? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs being performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a key word here, depending on how your English translators have translated it, it may appear twice. In verse 46, in this translation, it says every day they continued. And in verse 42, it says they devoted themselves. There's the same Greek word there. Devoted, continued to, are both good translations of it. It's this Greek word, proskatenores, um, and that literally means to continually do something. To do something so often that you're known for it. You do it all the time, and people, when they see that thing, they're like, that makes me think of you because you're always doing that. It'd be like if someone said board games, and you think of Alex because I love board games, and I have 70 board games, and I'm always talking about board games. I was talking to an artist here this week, and I was like, you look like a board game guy. He's like, I am. And so we immediately started talking about board games. I mean, there's just some things you continually do so much you get known for, like Darby crafts. Anytime I see somebody doing crafts, I think of Darby because she's just always doing some kind of, she's sewing, she's crocheting, she learned how to knit now, she's metal stamped, she's always doing something. The, the early church was known for these things. They were devoted to them. They continually did them. They were their daily habit. Which makes me think, what am I known for? Am I known for the things that the early church was known for? What is Horizon known for? Are we known for the things that the early church was known for? What do we do all the time? How do we spend our lives? How would people sum up what we're known for? What did the early church habitually do? Well, first of all, it says they devoted themselves to practicing the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? That's what I want to know, right? I, I think we can get clued in by looking at Jesus' great commission. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so when the apostles are teaching, what are they teaching? They're teaching exactly what Jesus told them to. Teach people to obey everything that I commanded. Jesus told his followers to go everywhere and teach people to obey what he taught them. And so they taught what Jesus had taught. If we want a snapshot of what that teaching looked like, we can look at the Sermon on the Mount. That was the densest section, the compilation of Jesus' teaching. This was Jesus' way of life. The next thing they devoted their time to was fellowship. Now, in church, we use the word fellowship in a different way than the New Testament does. I, heard the, I never heard the word fellowship outside of Lord of the Rings and the <laughs> Fellowship of the Rings until church. In church, they're always talking about like. We're having a good fellowship. We're just fellowshipping. Like, it's fellowship time. We're going to have a fellowship meal after this. Uh, that's actually not how the New Testament uses the word. Because what do we usually mean? We're having a meal. We're hanging out after church. We're eating a potluck, right? It doesn't mean potluck dinner at church. Um, growing up in churches, growing up churches I attended had fellowship halls where we would have this potluck dinner after services. Fellowship in my mind, from experience, how people used it came to mean eating with people. But that would be weird, right? Because if we read this, it says they devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. So if it means eating with people, they're essentially saying they devoted themselves to teaching, eating with people, and eating with people. Um, no, that's not what's going on here. The Greek word translated. 
word than we would think of for fellowship. It's actually the word for partnership. Partnership. They're partnering together. It would be like if you started a business with somebody and you say, that's my business partner, that would be the same idea of the Greek word here. It's someone that you're doing a mission, you're accomplishing a goal with. When they're talking about fellowship, they're not meaning they sat down and ate together. It's more like Lord of the Rings used the word fellowship. They're getting a band together to go accomplish a goal to defeat the dark lord of Mordor. In this case, it means that they work together for their shared and common mission. And what's the shared and common mission of the church? To teach people to become students of Jesus' way of life, the way that he lived and loved. In order to reach our neighbors and our co-workers, our family and our friends with the good news of Jesus, we need backup. We can't do it on our own. We need help. When people try to accomplish the mission of the church without the community of the church at their back, they quickly give up. Churches have flaws and faults, and we're going to talk about a lot of those over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about some of our flaws and faults. But if you're going to carry out the last command of Jesus to teach people to become students of his way of life, you're going to need a community, a counterculture community, to help you do it. See, the community of disciples is the best argument for what Jesus says being actually true. The way that we love each other and treat each other, the way that people feel when they're with us, is the best argument that what Jesus says is actually true. See, the church in the first century was a community of natural enemies who had joined together because of their mutual worship for Jesus. In our highly contentious age, what will provide the message of Jesus or what will prove that the message of Jesus is real and powerful is its ability to make enemies into allies. Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, people from the South, from the north, people who have been raised this way and that way, people who have very different ideas about things who come together around this mutual respect and worship of Jesus. If you've ever wondered, how will I ever help my friend understand who Jesus is and it feels impossible, you're absolutely right. Like, it's impossible for us to try to convince that uh, someone that Jesus is real through clever arguments. Very few people come to say, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus because you convince them with your really clever social media posts. It just doesn't happen. But what happens is they encounter a community of loving people who have a mutual respect for Jesus, and they feel something, they experience something, and they say there must be something true behind what they say. Of course, many Christians settle for amassing more information about Jesus and ignoring his directive to make disciples all together. You can do that without a church community at your back. But if we're going to make disciples and carry out what Jesus commanded for us to do and be, we're never going to be able to do that without a community of people to show that this thing is real. The next thing that they did, we're going to skip over the next one and go to prayer. Um, the early believers were desperate for God, and prayer was how they communed with the Father, just like Jesus did. They enjoyed spending time with God. They wanted him. Our prayer life the best indicator of how much I enjoy being with God. Not how much I do for God, not how spiritual I am. How much do I enjoy being with God? Because the goal of all this is to like God and be like Him. And I think a lot of us, we're learning a lot about God, but at the end of the day, do we really like Him? Do we really enjoy being with Him? Now Luke next tells us that they had everything in common, this early church. Now some people really struggle with this passage. 
I've heard people be like, this is communism right here. This is a, what, some type of biblical communism, you know? And then I've heard people say, this sounds more like a cult. Um, what does this actually mean? Does this mean that we should all live in a giant commune and pull our money into one account? I mean, Sean got a PS5 this week from his work for doing a good job. And uh, does, that, does this verse mean that he should give his PS5 to me? I really wish it did, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. You can keep your PS5, John. Um, what happened in between chapter 1, where we were last week, and chapter 2, where we are now, is there was this Jewish festival called Pentecost. All these Jews from all over the known Roman world came to Jerusalem. And while they were there, the Holy Spirit fell on about 120 people, um, followers of Jesus. And they went out, and they began speaking to these people in their native tongues and explaining who Jesus was. And thousands of people who had come to the city for this festival all of a sudden said, I'm going to follow this Jesus. I need to find out more about this Jesus. Now, before they could go back to their home, they were only going to be here for a short time for this festival. They need to be taught about what it means to follow Jesus, what the Jesus life looks like. And so all of a sudden, people who had traveled here expecting that to be here for a short time for the holiday, all of a sudden are now going to be here for an extended time when they learn how to be followers of Jesus. That means their Airbnb stay starts running out. Their money that they brought on the trip starts running out. The food and supplies that they've got, the, the financial things that they kind of set up for the short stay run out. And they're like, we want to stay and learn more about Jesus, but we're out of money, we're out of food, we're out of places to stay. And the early church gathers around them and says, hey, we're going to do whatever it takes to get you trained and equipped so that when you go back home, you know what you're talking about. That's what's going on here. The success of the early church seems painfully simplistic on paper. They continuously prayed and praised and practiced the teachings of Jesus. They marveled at the miracles and they shared generously with the foreigners who had found faith in their land. And something that I skipped over that we're going to spend most of our time on, they kept throwing dinner parties. And that last one is the mindset of a future church that I want to focus on today. The mindset that I think that we have to have if we're going to survive and thrive into the future as a church. It's mentioned twice in these few short verses. It talks about breaking bread. So what does it mean to break bread? Um, I think the life of Jesus is key to understanding what the apostles are trying to do as they form these early church communities. They were structuring the community of the church on what they had seen and experienced during three years of traveling around with Jesus. They spent three years on a road trip with Jesus, and now as they're setting up this community called the church, all they're doing is modeling what they saw Jesus do. They were teaching people what they saw Jesus taught, and they were holding open, judgment-free dinners just like Jesus, Jesus had. Remember <clears throat> excuse me, what the religious leaders asked the disciples when Jesus was teaching? It's over and over again in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Matthew 9 and 11, here's one example. The Pharisees said, why does your rabbi eat with tax collectors? They'll say, hey, by the way, we're going to throw a party at your house tonight. Get ready. And uh, he'll reach someone who's uh, had demons in them, and he's like, hey, by the way, we're going to have a di uh, dinner party at your house tonight. And he kept throwing these dinners, and he was eating with the wrong people. To understand what is happening here, we have to travel to a different culture. First century Jewish culture is not like our culture today. It was an honor-shame culture, and rabbis would travel around presenting a way of life based on the Old Testament and attracting disciples, students, of the way of life that they practiced and preached about. And when they would come to a city, they would try to get invited 
to a prominent Jewish leader's home or a prominent religious leader's home. That was the rabbi's goal. If I'm going to move up the social ranking, when I come to this city and speak, I need to get a good dinner invite to the people with power and money and influence. Dinner in the first century was all about status. Who was in and who was out? Who got to sit next to the host and who sat far away at the end of the table? Dinners were highly sophisticated social standing ranking systems. You came to a party and you're like, oh, I'm real far away from the host. Maybe next time if I do the right things, I play the right game, I give the right bribe, I give the right gift, I can move up the ranking. Playing the dinner game well was an important step in becoming an important rabbi with money and clout in the first century, century society. Jesus did something very different. Go read his biographies in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He kept holding dinners for the tax collectors, who were considered traitors, who worked for Rome, and sinners, which is a first century word used for sex workers. He invited people to dinner that no good rabbi would even go near, let alone eat with. He ate with the people no one wanted to eat with. He ate with people who it would hurt his reputation to be seen with, let alone eat with. Now as the apostles are structuring what the community of Christians looks like, these open, no-agenda meals are central to their vision. And we know that the early church did this. Pliny the Younger, a Roman historian, he talked about this new Jewish sect of Christianity. That's what they called it. He said it's no threat to the empire. He says they pray to this Jewish rabbi who we crucified as if he was some divinity. And they keep holding these meals, these harmless meals that are open to people. Um, in Jude 1.12, it talks about how the early church held agape feasts. And it talks about some of the problems that were arising as a result of that. Now, there are some who suggest that when Acts says breaking bread here, it's actually a callback to the Last Supper and the practice of communion or the Eucharist, and it's not actually about an open meal. Um, but we have to look at history a little bit. For the first couple hundred years after Jesus, the Last Supper or the Eucharist, the communion, the Lord's Supper, that was held as part of these open meals. It wasn't until three or four hundred years later when it was broken off into a separate religious custom. So, I think when Jesus said to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me, he was less prescribing a religious, religious ritual for our services and more encouraging his students to carry on his practice of holding open dinners, open to the tax collectors and sinners, open to the outcasts in our society, people like Wiccans and atheists and LGBTQI+, political antagonists and conspiracy theories, and the minorities in our community. What Jesus was saying was, remember to keep holding open dinner just like I did. Don't ignore the outcasts, the people that might hurt your reputation as a religious person. I don't think we're going to reach those kind of people with bumper stickers or angry social media rants. I think we'll reach them by welcoming them into our homes and around our tables and allowing them to experience belonging long before they express belief. What if, just imagine with me for a minute, what if Christians were known for no agenda dinners where everyone was welcome and felt loved? What if that's what Horizon was known for and Christians were known for throughout the world? Instead of being known for what we were against or our Sunday service, what if we were known for it? They throw really good dinner parties where everyone is welcome and wanted and feels loved. 
think it would really change how people feel about church. And I think it would change our community and our society. A lot more people would be curious about Jesus. That's exactly what the early church was known for. Is it any wonder that they flew the entire Roman Empire upside down? The power of inviting people who don't think like you or look like you or believe like you exactly dinner table to share known truth. I believe that's exactly what the future church must be known for. I believe the dinner table, not the Sunday service, is the future of the church. It's not going to be the flashiest service that survives into the future. It's going to be the people who have the most open and welcoming homes. I think the most powerful tool you have to break the good news of Jesus into our culture is your kitchen table. For too long, church has been something we do on Sunday instead of being a community that defines us every day. Jesus didn't save us for services, but for service, to impact our communities and our neighborhoods and our workplaces. He wants you to introduce your coworkers and family and friends to his way of life because it's a good life. It's the most abundant life. It's the greatest human life anyone can live. We accomplish the ministry of church not by volunteering in our ministries out of buildings, but by making disciples where we find ourselves every day throughout the week. That's where ministry happens, where you spend most of your time. You, if you're like me, you're already eating several times a day. I'm more than several. I'm multiple times. You know, um, you know the hobbits? There's a lot of Lord of the Rings references in this, I think. You know, the hobbits were like, I like second breakfast. You know, that's me. I like second breakfast. Breakfast and second lunch and second dinner and then some snacks in between as well. Um, we're already eating several times a day. I'm not asking you to add something to your schedule. I'm asking us to begin seeing our meal times as strategic opportunities for the gospel. This one thing could change our churches and our country if once a week Christians shared a non-judgmental, no-agenda meal with someone far away from God. Buy somebody a meal once a week who doesn't believe like you or look like What I've found is when I do that, as scary or overwhelming as that might seem, meals bond people together. There's a reason that most of our dates, right, involve a meal. Meals bond people. They emotionally bond people. And you don't have to talk about spiritual things. Every time I've ever done this, at some point, spiritual things come up, and they talk to me about it. Because they know that I'm a Christian. They know that I'm a pastor. And I get to talk about Jesus. And they bring it up naturally, and it's not forced, and it's not like, I bought you a meal. Now let me tell you about heaven and hell, and you better make sure you go in there. Like, it's not that at all. Nobody feels uncomfortable. We have a good time, and they're usually looking forward to the next time I invite them to share a meal with me. People in our culture are spiritually curious for something genuine, not something forced or manipulative or coerced. I believe that these conversations, when you get around the table with someone who doesn't believe or think like you, the Holy Spirit's going to do the heavy lifting. You don't have, it doesn't depend on you or having the right things you're going to say or making sure you have the right arguments or the right apologetics. The pressure is off of us. We show up and listen and respond, and the Spirit redeems our mistakes. There's sometimes I've sat down with people and I thought that was so stupid. I never could have said that. And sometimes, weeks or months later, they're like, hey, that thing you said, that really spoke to me. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've said. But somehow the Holy Spirit uses it when we show up and we're humble non-judgmental, we have no agenda, and we just love people, it's amazing how much they're willing to listen. 
See, people don't want to hear what you have to say until they're sure that you love them. And most of the time in the church, we've been shouting to a world that doesn't know that we love them because we haven't sat down around a table to offer them a free meal and show love first. When you lead with love, people want to listen to what we have to say. Now, Horizon has tried its share of small groups and programs, and I've always realized the same thing. I say more about relationships, not religion, but religion is a whole lot easier than relationships are. It's just easier to do religion, because religion gives you a formula. It gives you a script. Stand up, sit down, pray this, do that. You know, it's like, it's easy. You know what to do. Relationships require a lot of impromptu guesswork. They're messy. They're hard. They're complicated. There's not always an easy answer. You can't always do the same thing twice. And when I'm not careful, I have led us as a church backwards into models of doing church that I've been raised in and taught in and trained in that soak up our time but don't actually help us introduce new people to Jesus' radical way of life. I don't want to... I don't want church to keep you from building a relationship with someone who wants to know Jesus. I don't want church to keep you from building a relationship with your neighbor or your coworkers or your friends. I don't want to keep you so busy with activities that you never have time to love your neighbor or your coworker or your family member or your friend who doesn't know Jesus. I think the most important times for our church happen before or after a service. And I'm not talking immediately before and after when you help you set up or tear down. I'm talking about Monday through Saturday where you walk and live and laugh and share meals and breathe every day. That's where ministry happens. So many times if we're busy doing more things that amass information about Jesus instead of introducing new people to Jesus, I think we miss what it's all about to be a countercultural community of people living and loving like Jesus. I think we miss what it means to be. We're busy so many times with religious activities and not the ministry that Jesus imagined for his church, reconciling people far away from God with himself. For, 16, for 600 years, the church was known for throwing agape feasts, these open meals open to anyone, these dinners that defied societal social structures. Jews ate with Gentiles, Roman citizens ate with slaves, the rich ate with the poor. These meals were a picture of Jesus' kingdom, what it will look like when he comes as king. There's going to be a big table and all kinds of people from different backgrounds with different ideas about how things work will be gathered together to share a meal. I think the future church has to be known for what happens around tables, not what happens in services. I don't think our culture is impressed with what happens in here. We could have a great speaker, we could have great music, a great light show and smoke, and that's not going to matter to the average person out here. They're like, I don't care. But it's what's going to happen around tables when we love people who don't look like us or think like us or believe like us. That's what we have to be known about if we're going to be a future church. See, these dinners that the first century church held turn culture upside down. And if we want to spiritually shake up America, it's not going to be with better church services. It's going to be with better, open, no agenda, love-filled dinners. It's going to start with how we use our tables. Famous cook Julia Child once said, people who love to eat are always the best people. I like that quote because I love to eat and it makes me feel like a good person, right? Um, but I believe in the future, churches who love to eat will be the best Lord Jesus, thank you so much that when you said, remember you, you 
did it over a meal. After you were raised from the dead and you met the disciples and they were out fishing, you made a meal on the shore. When they came back, you made them breakfast. The God who created digestion uh, made so many things centered around meals. For the Israelites, all their festivals were about eating. And God, there's something about when we take this simple, primal human need and we turn it into an opportunity to love and serve and build community with other people. God, will you help us to be a church that sees our tables as the entryway into your kingdom? Give us opportunity to invite ordinary people who we encounter every day to build friendships and relationships with over food so that we might share with them the good news of who you are.